this has really brought a lot of people into a space where they normally probably wouldn't communicate completely the way they are. That has helped to foster the resilience that's needed amongst everyone across the university. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. What is resilience? The American Psychological Association describes it as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. Although it might commonly be perceived as an individual trait or skill, resilience is often a dynamic, non-linear, and contextual process with many interpersonal and environmental factors. As the world continues to grapple with unprecedented challenges in the wake of this pandemic, our collective capacity for resilience might feel as if it is wearing very thin. However, for those of us engaged in supporting a successful educational journey for our students, we may find ourselves struggling doubly with a duty of care to bolster their resilience as well. To be clear, although there may be connections to administrative processes focused on retention and various student support services, the notion of resilience in the academic environment should not be conceptualized as a means to an end. A nonprofit association, the Academic Resilience Consortium, or ARC for short, states that resilience can be broadly understood as capacities for persistence, creativity, emotional intelligence, grit, cognitive flexibility, risk-taking, agency, adapting to change, delaying gratification, learning from failure and success, and overcoming adversities. ARC is particularly interested in exploring to what extent resilience can be learned in young adulthood and what pedagogies and learning contexts influence their conceptions of success, failure, risk, and promote or inhibit the development of resilience. This summer, the consortium hosted a series of online conversations with hundreds of participants to explore issues surrounding resilience during the pandemic. They reported three key takeaways. Resilience is best understood as a dynamic, multifaceted, lifelong process. Resilience is a function of contextual as well as individual variables. And resilience is strengthened in conditions of community and belonging. These insights can provide a great starting point for educators to reflect on resilience and how they might foster or enhance student resilience within the academic environment. We can also look to a significant body of research in health professions where resilience has been a fairly well-defined component of professional role preparation for many years. A 2019 scoping review published in the Journal of Nursing Education identified and organized approaches to resiliency education into six key themes. Reflective practice, storytelling, peer support and mentoring, professional support and mentoring, mindfulness and meditation practice, and finally, enhancing self-knowledge and personal competencies. So there are a lot of flexible strategies and techniques for embedding resilience as a component of overall learning experiences. Another interesting example and resource is the ASU CareerWise Problem Solving Method, which is designed to offer students a self-directed framework for building resilience. This straightforward method includes four core steps. Assess the problem, specify the outcome you want, strategize, and finally, execute and evaluate. At the end of the day, as we all try to find the best possible pathway for surviving and thriving beyond these many challenges, the most important things we can offer our students are compassion, transparency, and authenticity. As Dr. Danielle King of Rice University explained in a recent TEDx presentation, 
Resilience does not equal success. Resilience is about the choices we make to continue pursuing our goals. And stay tuned for today's hot topic. The IBD obsession with assessment practices rides again with our exploration of an inside higher ed piece that advocates for humane assessment practices now and always. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues. Celia Kajwaitiwa. Aaron Kraft. So welcome to season five. Given the unprecedented state of the world in 2020, it would be weird not to touch on how this episode recording is so different for us, right? Yeah, obvious differences here. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I had to look back at my calendar out of curiosity and see when we last sat down together to record that last episode of season four, and turns out it was during the last week of February, which basically feels like a lifetime ago. It was only a couple of weeks after that last recording when all the school and business closures actually began in Arizona, and and we moved to remote work status around the middle of March. And so currently we're back to campus only in a cautious partial capacity right now, which is why this episode also marks another IBD milestone, our first ever fully remote recording. Yes, Mm. we are all in different places at different times. (laughs) (laughs) So friends and listeners, please excuse any audio weirdness and our rusty attempts to climb back into the boring but informative saddle. So really big topic and concepts here, and yet something that basically most of humanity is relating to in one way or another right now. In the academic realm, one thing that I've observed in recent months Uh, is a fair amount of conversation regarding educators, administrators, you know, trying to balance this need for compassionate flexibility with students without losing sight of the regular sort of appropriate academic expectations. Have you guys run into this, heard about this? What's your take on the challenge perceived or real on this balancing act? Right. So at the College of Nursing, assessments are very important. Our nursing students in particular are often engaged in high stakes assessments. The problem being is that they're taking these high stakes assessments now at home, which causes a lot of concern and anxiety uh, among the faculty and heightens the anxiety among the students as well. On the instructional design side, I'm having to assist the faculty in setting up proctoring tools, uh, lockdown browsers, as well as webcam monitoring tools to make sure that the assessments uh, stay secured and that academic integrity is being upheld. But the more technology you use, the more that can go wrong, right? So there has been an uptick in reported incidents of my internet suddenly going out and my webcam no longer working. I was kicked out of the exam and I can't get back in. And, you know, we have tools on the back end of the LMS to look at the student uh, behavior in terms of clicks, where they're going to. I can check out certain uh, diagnostics or analytics uh, reports to see what's going on. Um, and so I, there has been an uptick in these, these reports and the investigation into this, but I think on the other side, you have faculty who understand that we're in a delicate uh, balancing act right now, and they'll tell me, or, or you know, they'll basically let me and the student know, like, I'm willing to give the student another chance 
which is rare because oftentimes these students don't get necessarily a second chance to take these high stakes assessments. Right. You want your nursing students to be sharp and you know on point, and so they need to maintain that that average to continue to uh, remain in the program in good standing. But there's definitely been an increase on the instructor side in I think uh, empathy, and as long as it can be confirmed by looking at this these this backend data that these events actually occurred, which I gotta say most of the time, it, it seems like what the students are reporting has been legitimate. The, the faculty are willing to give a little bit of uh, leeway in terms of allowing a second attempt or adding extra time and, and generally just working with the student to get through it. So I have noticed uh, some, some give and take to accommodate the, the current situation. Interesting, that's a great example. Yeah, that is. Um, so I've been having this conversation throughout the entire summer, probably since we've gone online. Um, we've put together a SYNC instructional designer group, work group across the university. I want to say maybe about 20 or so have contributed in some way to um, putting some resources together for faculty. And so all summer we've been having this conversation about how do we help to prepare faculty to think in this regard to, you know, um, be flexible with their teaching and even just cognizant of how they they can adapt their teaching, um, their teaching style, their uh, curriculum to help students achieve when they're going to be online learners. Um, so one of the biggest conversations or one of the biggest things that I've been thinking about is, you know, how do we get our students to go from being in-person learners to online learners? And how do we make sure that our faculty are understanding that it's, you know, not necessarily the same thing and they need to be as flexible um, with their teaching style as possible without completely giving in to, you know, the um, the rigor and grace, um, as you mentioned in the question. The other part um, that I've seen this in has been just watching my son who became one of those students who um, is no longer in person. He's now taking online classes um, and has been one of those students who was not you know, very happy about this move and as probably a lot of our students have been. Um, but there are a couple of particular classes or specific classes that he's taking that require labs. And with those classes, they've allowed for online learning. Well, it's a little hard to, you know, completely do labs. I think at times um, as an online learner who wasn't prepared to be an online learner, <laughs> um, and he's struggled along with a lot of his classmates. And so watching them have to learn how to communicate with their professor, with their TAs quickly to let them know, you know, look, we're not getting this, we're not understanding this. And watching, you know, the communications go back and forth and having to see or seeing how the instructor is trying to adapt um, so that they're getting what they need has been, you know, it's interesting. And it's one that I have to continue to push him to, you know, be communicative with his instructors more than ever. 
I think that's been, you know, one of the biggest things because instructors might think that they're being flexible and thinking about this and being compassionate, but sometimes they don't realize, you know, if the, if the students aren't talking to them or communicating their struggles, they might not think that there is much of a struggle. That's a really good example. I love bringing in the the parent perspective as well. I've uh, experienced with my daughter's transition to high school this year and being an online learner and not expecting that her general digital fluency would necessarily translate to her digital learning fluency um, and that there have been aspects that are not uh, so much about the curriculum or, or the platforms, but more about time management, um, those communication skills, the things that kind of surround it that uh, cause those feelings of frustration and anxiety and, you know, just a general feeling that it's not worth the hassle of persisting through it. So I think all that can be tied to resilience and finding ways to help students not always just get through the task at hand, but to deal with those, those other feelings as well that can, make, that can become barriers. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I, I also have a high school student as well, and I've had to watch some of that same thing unfold. I usually speak to my son just because he's in higher ed. But yeah, all those things, I mean, it's, it's gone across the spectrum. spectrum. I've always enjoyed... <laughs> virtual learning and that's why I'm in the field in the first place uh, so I have to I think develop my own sort of empathy towards those who were forced into this situation they didn't want to learn zoom necessarily I'm talking about instructors or students they didn't want to be pushed into a virtual platform to facilitate learning that's not what they are paying for that's not what their expectations were coming in and suddenly, I, I, well, and suddenly they're forced to. So I, I imagine for them, resilience is a very real thing. It's, it's a sink or swim, I imagine, for people who didn't opt into this but were forced into it. I've seen, I can think off the top of my head, at least two people, maybe three, who, uh, from a faculty or administrative staff who just retired over the past six months yeah. because they didn't want to deal with this. They're, they're like, I'm done. This is not what I signed up for. And fair enough. You know, I, I don't blame them to be honest. So I imagine for, for those who aren't inclined towards virtual learning, that this has been an especially critical or, or, or a stressful uh, challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even, even nationally in a broader sense, the, not just education sectors, but the changes to the makeup of our workforce are already seeing effects as far as, you know, the number of uh, women participating in the workforce, for example, the, the balance is shifting a bit and things like that, which could take a very long time to recover no matter what happens in the next year or two. Yeah, I, I feel like this has definitely pushed a lot of people to you know, figure out whether it's their breaking point or not. And I, and when I say breaking point, it's more of the, do I want to take this challenge on type of thing? Um, because it is definitely a huge challenge. And I try to put myself in their shoes and say, you know, if I was in a space where I could, you know, leave and just kind of allow this time to pass through and jump back in, would I do it? It's yeah. a complex issue with a lot of dimensions, for sure. 
So there have always been a lot of resources, specialists, and approaches dedicated purely to various aspects of student success in the higher education environment. How is fostering resilience different at this critical juncture? Whose job is it anyway? Or, or to put it another way, how do we determine our role in meeting this need right now? Go ahead, I think it's everybody's job, you know, to foster resilience in some way, whether it's, you know, the starting with the dean, um, encouraging resilience down to her directors who are also encouraging resilience to their, you know, staff and faculty who are then fostering resilience through students. I think it's on every person in some way to try to find a way to to encourage, um, you know, to keep going and to find what works for them. And even just to connect them to those other resources, right? I mean, I think even being mm -hmm. a bridge is important. I mean, I also enjoyed this conceptualization or, or takeaway, if you will, from the Academic Resilience Consortium about how resilience can be strengthening conditions of community and belonging. Yeah. Sometimes we don't explicitly, you know, dedicate a lot of time to building community in a classroom because it's sort of, it's the normal progression of starting at the beginning of the semester and kind of where you ideally end up at the end of the semester. But with the many shifts, with, with the many stressors, building community may have to be more of a, a built-in um, attended to dimension of teaching now in order to foster the, the sense of belonging and support network that our learners need. Yeah, well, that's been a long mm -hmm. time in the, in the making. I, if you've paid attention to the writing on the wall in education for, I don't know, at least the past 20 years, ever since the internet emerged as a, a powerful force <laughs> in our world, uh, the world has become in, uh, increasingly interconnected and we're having to find ways to work together in order to move ahead, right? Especially yeah. professionally. And so I think that's what we're seeing here. I was incredibly impressed with how Arizona State University prepared themselves for, for what happened for the, for the pandemic without even knowing it. And what I mean by that is we have been adopting web conferencing tools and we recently switched over to Zoom, right? Before, and this was before the pandemic hit, we had, uh, we finally established Slack as a, a text-based way of communicating with everybody across the, the college. And there, there were smaller communities that were using, say, uh, Skype before, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, you might be able to contact uh, the, uh, the university technology office. I, I could contact them. The faculty couldn't through Skype. Um, students couldn't. Um, but with Slack, suddenly everyone's interconnected. I don't think students can contact administration or staff, but uh, still we can all talk to each other. And so I think what you're asking, um, how is fostering resilience different at this critical juncture? Well, you know, you, I'd look at my life before the pandemic, maybe I needed clear goals and a lot of meditation to get me through that uh, 40 hour work week, that hour long commute to work, you know, but at this point, what we need are those tools that foster community because we're all working separately. We're not, you know, we're not necessarily all in the office together anymore and we need to be able to reach each other quickly. 
uh, but we still need to get work done. You know, faculty need to contact me um, uh, on demand in a sense, right? And I need to contact my colleagues uh, when, when something comes up and it needs to happen uh, as quickly as possible. So the fact that ASU had these tools in place and then when all this hit, we were able to quickly move to these platforms and continue to connect with each other and to get the work done, um, I think was a, a wonderful instance of prescience on the part of, well, who's, you know, you're asking whose uh, job is it? It's the people, it's, it's the people in charge. Um, management always dictates the culture and the people making the decisions, uh, I think made some very wise choices in, in making sure that we had tools of communication, robust tools of communication available at a critical moment. You're tying up some great ideas here. You're bringing together this idea of communication, culture, community, how they relate to each other as an underpinning to fostering resilience, both you know amongst ourselves as employees of a higher education industry, but also how we can kind of think through that and model that with learners, with students. And that we are really, we've been really fortunate, as you said, to have a lot of infrastructure already in place. It's been, some of the challenge has been kind of broadening those circles of, of you know, users, if you will. Um, so, for example, you know, the university has been integrating Slack in academic courses for a while now. But certainly, I think our experience, at least in the, in the College of Nursing and Health Innovation, was that there hadn't been a really high adoption rate or interest rate yet in building it as an add-on to a course, for example. Well, uh, not at all. Now, I didn't. I didn't even want to learn Zoom until March, <laughs> and suddenly right. I'm a Zoom pro now. Right. So it's this sort of you know we've we've hit this um, critical mass, if you will, where that infrastructure and having those pieces at least on the board have uh, given us new opportunities to be successful, to find new ways to promote the resilience for everyone and to build that community. And I'm glad you talked about the communication because one of the things that I've seen come out of all of this has been the connections being made across the university to make things happen and yeah. to make things work as well as they can. And so, you know, whether it's through various work groups, but it's different layers of specialties across the university who are coming together thinking of ways to make this work for the for their specific um areas. So whether it's instructional design teams or um, classroom support teams or just within the college itself, this has really brought a lot of people into a space where they normally they wouldn't communicate the way they are in yeah. an organized fashion. That in itself has helped to, com to foster the resilience that's needed amongst everyone across the university. Yeah, that's an excellent insight. That reminded me, even, you know, as Erin, you were saying that it's everybody's job, that reminded me over the summer of the news piece that ASU put out about trying to prepare, you know, a, a large number of classrooms to be able to capitalize on this high flex or this synchronous broadcast model with some students in the room and some students out of the room. And one of the literal hardware problems they were running into was a supply chain problem on mounts for cameras to go up on a wall in a classroom. And so instead of being stuck and not being able to prepare whatever number of classrooms needed to be done by, you know, early August, 
they looked at the resources that might be available and literally worked with a lab within the university to design and produce these mounts within a couple of weeks, which that connection might never have been innately forged because it's just not part of the normal process that you would go through to build out the hardware in a classroom. Invest in wall mounts. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> That's a good time. Well, you know, Celia brought it up that it's everybody's job. And I was just, I was laughing about this with my wife the other night because I was saying, right now is not a time to be one of those, this is not my job kind of person <laughs> kind of people, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're all having to, we all have to make concessions and, mm -hmm. and be flexible mm -hmm. and graceful in order to get the work done. Yeah. Yeah. But this has definitely bridged a lot of like siloed, um, you know, work that had been happening prior. I mean, people, different departments are working together in ways that they had never had to before this. It's a, there's positives, you know, that silver lining of resilience. <laughs> right. Yeah, I try not to be the delusional optimistic in the face of uh, untold amounts of suffering, truly. Yeah. But I do try to remind myself from time to time that there are good things to be found if you look hard enough here and there. And it's an exercise. It's definitely a challenge to, to keep that thinking. But and it's important to, I think, at least try. Yeah. So we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but from the instructional designer's perspective, what practical ideas or tips do you have for instructors to promote and support that learner resilience? We're talking entry-level nuts and bolts. What would you recommend to someone? I think just talking, talking it out. What's going on in your course? What are your strengths? What's happening that's the positive? And what are the things that you're struggling with or you know, need to work on? Where do you see your students struggling? And how can you make that you know, um, work better? So, and I say this because I just recently had a conversation with faculty who, you know, was just talking about the change going from um, teaching face-to-face -to, -face to now and basically an online course. I mean, it, it's remote, um, but it's synchronous. So he does have a few students in the classroom, but we were talking about how, you know, they're going from point A to point B in this course and he's seeing some struggle and he's not sure, you know, how to, um, how to make that smoother, how to, how to get them to get to where they need to be by, let's say, assignment three. Mm -hmm. So we talked it out and, you know, I asked what's working for you, what, um, what do the students seem to be getting, and then where are they struggling? And then we talked about things like scaffolding, and we talked about how, you know, taking into perspective that students are are coming in not completely having the skill set they need to be ready to do some remote learning and how are you in the beginning of your course encouraging them to learn some new skills to prepare for the rest of the learning in the in the class and so it didn't occur to him prior to that, you know, to think in that way until we, we just talked it out. And it happened to just flow into a conversation that we were having about something else. But I think it just helped him in general, just to be talking it out, talking about, you know, how things can work a little bit smoother and help the students um, where they need to be 
because he wasn't seeing this in his face-to-face courses it's happening now so we just kind of talked it out like what you know why do you think that is why do you think you know it's not working out now the way it did before so I I really think a lot of it has to do with communicating and just talking it out with others Mm -hmm. and you know when I think about the ID perspective it's one of those areas where you know for us in our in our line of work as an instructional designer our job is to support faculty in a lot of various ways. I mean, we're, we're the Superman of, <laughs> of education. Sometimes if you look at that, you know, infographic, but it's one of those times where it's, I, where IDs can say, I can help with that. You know, yeah. you have this question, I can help with that. Or you need to learn this. I can help with that, you know, and it, yeah. it's been fun to, and, and I say that again, you know, going back to what you said earlier, I mean, this is a time of very, very challenging time. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, sadness along with it. But when, when we're focusing on just the work environment itself and what we do, I mean, it, for, for me anyway, it feels like it's one of those times where I can say I helped in some way. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So, okay, from a, des- a designer perspective, so I, I'm going to take a slightly different angle than Celia. Our job is to help faculty, that's that's for certain, but I would also add that our job is to encourage and foster robust learn te- uh, learning interventions for our students. So that keeping that in mind, um, how do you create a, a robust learning experience in a virtual environment? Now, if you've been doing it for a while that's not really a difficult question but if you're new to it like a lot of people are then you're going to be perplexed at first because it's a new landscape it's a new uh, uh, playing field so to speak you know research shows that it's not the platform that matters in terms of successful learning it's the strategies being employed yeah so it doesn't matter uh, when video became a thing 70 years ago, 80, I I think it was like, yeah, it was a long time ago. (laughs) You know, (laughs) suddenly everybody wanted to do learning by, by video. Right. And so it it was like, let's learn by radio. Let's learn by video. Now let's learn by internet. Right. But, and and that's fine. The the thing is the platform itself isn't going to dictate the quality of the experience. You need to have, uh, you need to have sufficient learning strategies embedded in it. So, and to give a hard example, uh, I would say that instructional designers need to try to advocate to uh, create learning experiences where the students are are basically encouraged to generate active connections between the new knowledge and what they already know, right? So you want to make sure that you're creating these learning experiences that have the students uh, creating cognitive coherence schema and integrating the new knowledge with pre-existing knowledge. And so it gets a little, you know, I'm getting a little textbook there. I'm getting a little academic, but that's what an instructional designer is there for. That's what these master's degrees in the field teach you is, is how to do these kinds of things. So, um, you know, don't be scared and, and don't, don't be, don't be dismissive. I think for certain generations, anything that's on a computer is a video game, <laughs> but that's not, the reality we're living in now like half of our world is working from home and on zoom so 
it's time to move beyond that and, and to start integrating robust strategies to create uh, authentic and deeper learning experiences. I think it's a point well made that we have tremendous research and evidence to, to, uh, to know what it means to implement evidence-based teaching and learning principles and how successful they can be. And that going back to basics is sometimes really, truly the first step. That, mm -hmm. that is a good insight and a really good reminder. I think that, you know, even if you were, um, you know, say an instructor who'd been teaching the same class for several years and you'd been thinking about, is it time to review and retune? Well, maybe this is the opportunity and the nudge to kind of take that and go back and, and look and see if your teaching strategies or the way that you're bringing students into that active learning experience needs a little bit of a boost, not in a way to make it more complex, but to meet these many layers of goals at the same time. Um, another thing that I've um, talked with some people about recently is really just this idea of kind of bumping up the frequency of pulse checks or check-ins with students. Again, that's just communication. And I think you risk running into the naysayers who are, you know, all about don't coddle the students. But if we accept this idea that community and belonging contributes to resilience in this really impactful way, it really doesn't cost an instructor much to kind of increase the way and the frequency with which they're checking in with students. And maybe checking in takes a different form. Maybe you provide some opportunities for students to anonymously provide some feedback and insight to you that they won't feel necessarily as awkward about, you know, spilling all of their private thoughts and experiences because there are many good reasons why anyone is not interested in giving people a laundry list of the struggles that they're dealing with. But providing an opportunity, I think, is really important. So you're on the communication boat with Celia there. <laughs> well, this you know, going, going to what you were talking about, Erin, when the instructional design work group got together, that was one of the things that they wanted to do is foster some of that resilience and develop resources for faculty to be able to take a look at what they're already doing and how they can think about moving it to a to remote learning experiences. And so a lot of the conversations in the workshops and then in some of the support times were all about how do I take this activity that I do in class and make the technology work with me to make it happen online and what can what do I need to adjust how do I how do I adjust it or do I just completely scrap it and try something new and a lot of that you know was it's been ongoing conversations going back to communication <laughs> they've they've yeah. you know had on there's been ongoing conversation throughout the entire semester and now it's turning into okay how do I make this work better for the next section or the next, sorry, not next section. How do I make this work better for the next session? The next iteration. Well, this mm -hmm. is all an iterative process for sure, but I gotta say uh, hats off to the ASU instructional design community because they came together quickly. We, we had resources going almost immediately, workshops, tips and tricks on, and, and just everything that faculty could possibly need in order to make that transition between March and the beginning of fall semester in August. That was, in my eyes, just incredible how everybody was able to organize and rally 
and put forth all this support. And again, kind of referencing the previous uh, uh, question, we were able to do this because we had the tools, because the tools were in place already. Mm-hmm. So um, it was, you know, it was like, sort of like dominoes falling if, and the, it, or it was like a chain link, right? And, and all the pieces mm-hmm. were strong this time. And so, it, and, and mistakes were made, I'm, I'm sure, and we could do things better, but considering that this is an unprecedented sort of worldwide event, I think we did a fantastic job and, and really hats off to the community for, for stepping up to the challenge. And yeah, we did have the tools, but I think it also showed what tools we still needed. That's so- true it's still a continual process of, okay, what else do we need? And, you know, let's try to find a way to get the other tools that are still needed that we're missing, um, you know, as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So just pulling back one layer then, what about beyond our students? I mean, I want to take a minute just to touch on you know, us, our instructional designer community, our our higher education teaching colleagues. This is such a tremendously stressful time. We're all being challenged in unexpected ways as we've been discussing. Do you have any like insights or or brief tips for listeners who are working on their own resiliency? I mean, I think we put a lot of energy in supporting our students, but uh, it's like the um, the airplane metaphor. You got to put on your own oxygen mask first. I feel like it, you know, goes between that mindfulness, that time to kind of meditate and think about what kind of time this is, but then also not just focusing on what's not working, but focusing on what is, you know, sometimes looking at that, that glass half full is going to continue to get you to push forward and keep, you know, staying resilient. Um, Because a lot of the times when, when something isn't working, it pulls us back from wanting to continue our progression. That's a good point. Yeah, personally, I find that uh, actual meditation works, focusing on, on your breathing, calming the mind, setting aside 20 minutes a day, especially when things get stressful. I, you know, I have two kids at home right now and I'm working at home <laughs> and my wife's at home working as well. So things, especially a few months back, were just incredibly chaotic at times and it was hard to get a release or an escape when the pressure would, would mount. So, you know, maybe, maybe lay off the caffeine a little bit, be good to yourself, love yourself and know that a lot of people are, are uh, being challenged right now and stay connected to a, a healthy community. Try to find other ways to, to connect with the world that are positive and that are going to feed good things to your mind because this is a very stressful time and you, you just do not want to aggravate that unnecessarily. Those are really good tips. Although I will say I am literally drinking another cup of coffee right now, Aaron. So the caffeine intake Some of is... us have a higher tolerance than others. I had green tea this morning. And then before we did the podcast or started recording, I had to down a glass of uh, coffee. So <laughs> a cup of coffee. Keeping us sharp. Hey, I had coffee today too. I'm definitely but it's interesting. discouraging coffee. <laughs> And, you know, you talked about your challenges with your new workspace um, at home. And I kind of had, so I was working remotely at the beginning and I had started to develop some of that, you know, balance or figured out how to develop that balance between, 
you know, working and not trying to stay online the entire day because I had no stopping point, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and finding time for myself to just kind of breathe and take in everything that was going on because I was entrenched in all of this, you know, as we all were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came back to the office, I found that it was very hard to find that time anymore. And you would think, you know, you're going back to the office. Not a lot of people are here. Um, you should have more, more quiet time, more time to focus and think about yourself. Well, that actually kind of went opposite for me. <laughs> I came back to the office and I felt like I didn't have any more time for me to like breathe and take everything in the way I did at home. And it, it was an interesting, you know, um, switch up because usually I come to the office and it's kind of my getaway from home and and the chaos that's there but it it kind of ended up being a little opposite for a while there until I got you know my feet under me and then I was like okay now I can kind of take this all in think about you know everything that's happened and kind of get it organized in my head because everything was such a shuffle in the beginning and then you know I started to find some time to breathe and have that mindfulness um, bit of time throughout the day. So that's amazing insight. I definitely think that the impacts of just changing our our work environments are going to be something that stays with us for a long time. I experienced a little bit of that just kind of loss of anchoring sensation when we first moved remote and Mm -hmm. it was a little bit unexpected I felt like I was doing so much stuff but I wasn't getting anything done weirdly like it was nothing felt finished nothing felt organized and so I literally found myself a couple weeks in deciding that to get me to a point of uh, at least acknowledging progress I literally chose one household task and one work task each day to put on a sticky note on my monitor that I got to throw away at the end of the day because I knew I'd completed at minimum one item in each category. And that helped me reset a little bit and and see that, look, I'm tangibly getting things done. I am working until it got to a point where it felt like I had some more structure again. So well, now in our resources, I think one of the pieces of advice was to create clear goals. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So that sounds to me like you were, that's what you were doing. Yeah, even if it was nothing more than fold a load of laundry and put it away. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That was, it's that was something. A, that was a goal. <laughs> the other so, thing I'll say that's helped is um, documenting everything. You know, it wasn't helping, or it wasn't happening at the time. But now that I've had some downtime, I've been able to document everything that we've been doing. And that has really helped me to see, wow, like we did a lot, even though it seemed like chaos, unorganized Mm -hmm. chaos, it actually, there was some organization to it, (laughs) but it didn't, it helped me to kind of get everything down on paper so that I could see, okay, this is everything that happened. And this is how it looks, how it came out you know, how, where we started and where we're, where we're getting to now. And that's helped me just in my own, you know, um, my own mind to kind of calm down a little bit. I love (laughs) that. That retrospective (laughs) analysis piece. That's great. I love that. 
that's really helpful because it gives you some ideas on where we can make future adjustments and, and do things differently too. So I think that's really valuable. Well, thanks for sharing your insights and awesome tips for resilience. I really think that this is gonna be an unfolding journey that we're gonna be on for quite some time. Attending to these controllable aspects of resilience seems like a pretty good investment of energy for the long haul. All right, let's shift gears and dip into our first hot topic of season five. So today we're pondering a recent Inside Higher Ed piece by Rosalie Metro titled, Humane Assessment Shouldn't Happen Only During a Pandemic. The word humane immediately hooked me because it's almost a coy shade throwing towards standard assessment practices, spicy. But seriously, I think this actually goes hand in hand with the main topic of this episode in terms of meeting students where they're at, empowering their agency, and supporting them in finding their own path to success. This could be itself an important ingredient toward fostering resilience. What are your thoughts? The first thing I think about is the complaints that I hear from my own children whenever <laughs> their, fa their faculty or teachers tell them to show their learning or show, show something in their assessments. It's not just an ABCD you know, type of quiz or exam. And my um, response to them being a former classroom teacher and instructional designer and working in education for all these years is, oh, I'm so sorry your teacher wants to see what you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that mock empathy. So yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed a bit of a, a juxtaposition there because students will complain, uh, you know, for example, like they don't want to, like you were saying, they don't want to show the work or they're, they're not used to alternative assessment methods beyond a multiple choice quiz, right? However, I also hear a lot of complaints, especially from students that, oh, I don't want a webcam watching me while I take an exam. That seems to be a big issue right now. So it's like, well, you can't have both. You either need to move away from these sort of standardized assessment approaches, multiple choice quizzes, and towards demonstration of mastery, right? And then, or you need, you're gonna have that camera on you, you're gonna have that webcam on you and you're gonna have a lockdown browser in place. So it, at least in these kind of situations while we're all testing at home. So it, you know, it, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And I would think that at the end of the day, maybe once, you know, these students, uh, I mean, your, your son's uh, a bit younger, he's, he's one of, he's a- sophomore this year that's right so as he gets older he might realize the value in oh like I had to actually demonstrate that I learned this as opposed to a multiple choice quiz which you know you can learn how to how to be a good test taker and not necessarily learn the content mm -hmm. that's true yeah there's different skills there I was gonna say I think the uh the the buried lead here if you will is that really at the bottom you know core value here it's about assessment for learning, formative assessment, as opposed to putting as much emphasis on the summative assessment, which especially in our health professions and our you know, standardized professional role type programs, that's a difficult line. That is a difficult line to walk because 
you have to ensure that the, the rigor and the competencies are accounted for and be able to demonstrate that, for example, a nursing student at the end of a program can become certified to be a nurse and be safe. So there's a big picture here, but at the same time, I think this, this idea of interweaving, even with standards-based uh, curriculum, that students can still be, they can be encouraged to identify very concrete goals and, and figure out what they need to do to meet them and have the instructor as more of that guide on the side with the assessment to to meter them through as they go over the you know the arc of the course to get there and to see that they are armed with the resources they need to get there. You're looking at a big shift in how uh, an instructor would spend their time interacting with the students. So right now with the uh, nursing program, for example, a lot of time is put into creating the exams and then the setup for administering the assessment to make sure that it's everything goes off without a hitch and that it's as secure as possible. But let's flip that and suddenly you are having to keep track of, a, of every student's performance day to day or, or activity to activity, assessment to assessment, and then communicate with them regularly. So this seems to be a theme of, the, of this uh, episode is, is communication, right. right? The need for communication. So I actually wholeheartedly endorse the, the latter. I, I really do. I would love to see a shift in the paradigm of how we assess learning in, in education and higher education. And I, I think that is a feasible way to go about it, but you're going to have to alter your expectations as an instructor about how you're spending your time and where you're putting your energies. So that's one uh, possible hurdle. And then if you have a large enrollment class, which a lot of universities do, right. <laughs> as, you know, especially for the uh, incoming freshman courses and, and, and core uh, courses, it's just going to be, I don't know if it's even possible to, uh, to oversee personally or even through your TAs, 160 students, activity to activity and, 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 and communicate with them. So there are some barriers in place but I do support it overall. Yeah, I wondered about that scalability issue as well, Aaron. I think it could be <laughs> it could be more complex in uh, certain areas than others, but even if that just meant, for example, um, building in some of that goal setting as a student activity at the beginning and providing a couple of self-reflection points along the way, it might not be as, as onerous, if you will, um, on the instructor side if it's mostly about nudging the students into thinking about it as much as it is changing the, the um, nuts and bolts of their assessment practices, you know, not taking out exams or reworking exams, but more or less interweaving this sort of uh, higher level self-assessment as part of the whole package. Well, now I you think... got me thinking of alternative ways to support that model. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it makes it a more interactive process. I mean, I think that's kind of the gist of what this, this uh, author is advocating for, that there is ideally a responsibility on the part of the student to set the goals, evaluate their progress, and then kind of report out at the end, if you will, by, you know, completing in whatever format the instructor deems appropriate, but having that student basically complete an evaluation that says, yep, I set out to earn a B and these are the things that I, I accomplished and I definitely feel like I should get that B. That's part of a self-directed learning strategy end to end. It develops ownership for the student. 
yeah you know it it would um I think it would ease some of those appeals sometime when they start to <laughs> yeah because they're it's an ongoing process and they're seeing their progression throughout the semester yeah. so it's not just yeah. like a I started here and all of a sudden I'm here at the end type of thing they've had to be aware of their progression the entire time yeah yeah that breeding of awareness is absolutely critical especially for learners who are new to something and and just well we talked about it earlier they well, the article was talking about the students look at the learning objectives for the course and then they are to reflect on what, which ones they think they'll do well on, which ones they may have difficulty with, and basically summarize how they think they'll do by the end, and then document that journey with the guidance of the, their instructor, the subject matter expert, as opposed to, uh, I hope you read the syllabus, <laughs> and good luck. <laughs> so that breeding that, that, uh, that awareness, self-awareness, and that uh, I think helps encourage self-directed learning, which is what Jeanette was saying. And yeah, and that helps to, well, further promote this idea of, of uh, ownership. I would hope it would move students away from just indiscriminately chasing points, you know, as a disconnected kind of activity, if you will, that they are just trying to get everything that they possibly can uh, to refocusing that energy towards understanding what it means to uh, to achieve mastery to the level that they themselves chose. So that that's, again, it takes that ownership um, and ideally motivation to a higher level. I think also not just for the students, but it provides an ongoing look for the instructor as well. Mm -hmm. So they can do things like monitor and adjust easily. If they see that, you know, a lot of their learners are struggling at certain points within the time frame or along their progression, they can look to see how they can make adjustments themselves, um, you know, if that's needed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're moving away from a mechanical approach to a more humanistic approach to, to learning. And I, I really do think that's where the world is very slowly moving towards, but nonetheless, that does seem to be more and more uh, fashionable. You're reading about it more, you're seeing these ideas uh, emerge into, uh, into the conversations that we're having among the working professionals in, in education. So I, I do think this is a, a fantastic idea and it's something to, uh, to consider. I firmly believe when in doubt, err on the side of compassion. I mean, at the mm. end of the day, be a human. <laughs> All right, friends. Thanks for sharing your perspectives on this interesting assessment-focused hot topic. We also definitely explored many facets of resilience in the higher education environment. Although we certainly are not student counselors, advisors, psychologists, or support specialists, I do think we are a valuable part of the academic community striving to ensure all learners are able to continue their educational journey. I'd like to thank Celia Kochwaitiwa and Erin Kraft for considering the broad, abstract concept of resilience and where instructional design might intersect. As always, major kudos to Erin for both participating and being the guy who pushes the buttons and toggles the widgets to ensure our listeners don't have to listen to all of our flubs. If you, our audience, would like to share your tips for developing and maintaining resilience for yourself or your students, 
reach out to us on Twitter or by email. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Today we're pondering. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I was missing um, Aaron's. Oh, I'm coming. Oh, no, right? I was waiting for that. <laughs> it was a riff, Aaron. Hot topic. Thank you. Now we can go. <laughs> Didn't seem right without hearing. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking in my head, okay, this is where I edit the sound clip. <laughs> or splice in the sound clip. You were doing anticipatory editing. In, in my head, it was playing. Awesome. <laughs>